on May 9th, 1980, a film that would not change the horror genre necessarily, but that definitely influenced it was released. That movie was Friday the 13th. But was it inspired by a real-life incident? I had never thought about that until author Priscilla Bettis left a comment on a Summer Spirit series post that I was working on. Here's what she wrote. Haunted Summer Camps. That would fit your Summer Spirit series, too. Surely some of those campfire stories the counselors told us were based on actual events. Hmm. Haunted Summer Camps. That idea haunted me. It was many things. Brilliant, obvious, and what the heck? Why had I never thought to look into that before? Well, thanks to Priscilla, there it was, just begging me to research it. So, I did. And that's how I discovered a case that instantly made me wonder if it had inspired the Friday the 13th movies. About that, I'm not sure. But I do know it inspired this, our new, our first, serialized season of the Haunt Johns podcast. Haunting American True Crimes. Thank you for tuning in and taking this voyage into mystery with me. I'm Courtney Maroc, your narrator for this journey. Let's dive into our first case, the Camp Scott murders. It was the first night of camp and excitement was in the air. Sleepaway camp, new friends, lots of activities, summer fun. A thunderstorm forced campers and counselors alike to huddle in their tents that first night, including Lori Lee Farmer, 8, Doris Denise Milner, 10, and Michelle Heather Gus, 9, who all shared the same tent, and who would all meet the same fate. As little girls are apt to do, whether there's a thunderstorm or not, but especially during sleepovers, some were heard screaming during the night, which was dismissed as the usual late-night shenanigans often heard at camp. No one went to check that it wasn't anything else. However, around 6 a.m. on Monday, June 13, 1977, they quickly discovered those screams were likely the last sounds Lori Lee, Michelle, and Doris Denise would ever make. A counselor spotted a sleeping bag on the trail as she headed to the showers to start her day. Except as she drew nearer, to her horror she realized someone was inside, someone who was no longer alive. As those in charge quickly alerted authorities and rushed to check on the other campers, they discovered two more battered bodies in a tent, both in their sleeping bags. Doris Denise had also been strangled. It was later determined all three girls 
had also been sexually assaulted. The camp was, of course, evacuated as quickly as possible, and campers were sent back home while a manhunt for the killer ensued. Who would commit such a heinous crime? Why? And why those girls? From the start, authorities were fairly sure it was not a targeted crime, but rather one of convenience. The girls' tent was on the end, about 50 to 75 feet from the next nearest tent, and was partially obscured by the showers. There were several clues left behind at the crime scene, though, including a flashlight, a fingerprint, a shoe print belonging to a tennis shoe, and blood that wasn't all from the girls. The fingerprint proved the most helpful. It was alleged to belong to Jean Leroy Hart, an escaped convicted felon. Although, some newspapers reported what was thought to be a fingerprint later turned out not to be, so there's some conflicting information on this. At any rate, police set their sights on Hart. He seemed a likely suspect. He'd been convicted of kidnapping and raping two Tulsa women, but had escaped from the Mays County Jail in 1973, shortly after he'd arrived. He'd been on the loose ever since. He'd grown up about a mile from the camp and was suspected of being in the area, especially after a search found a cave with some items believed to belong to Hart that he'd made while in jail. His short time in jail, that is. But not everyone was convinced he was the killer. Because of the tennis shoe print, some Locust Grove locals believed police were making Hart a scapegoat. Locust Grove was the area where Camp Scott was near. As one unnamed resident was quoted as saying in a daily news article from February 12, 1978, No woodsman in his right mind would cut across country in a pair of tennis shoes. About the meanest SOB around here will tell you that he won't go into the woods around this time of year unless maybe he's horseback. You can step into a whole bed of copperheads in any pile of leaves. Jean Leroy Hart was eventually tracked to an isolated cabin in the woods about 50 miles from Camp Scott. He was arrested on Thursday, April 6, 1978. But who killed the Girl Scouts? Was it really Hart? To this day, no one knows for sure who killed Lori Lee, Doris Denise, and Michelle. Thanks to his past, one can see why it's likely people suspected Hart. And if a fingerprint really was found at the scene and it really belonged to him, who else could it have been? But what about the shoe print? None of the newspaper articles I read mentioned his shoe size. Was it nine and a half like the one that matched the footprint in the girls' tent? If so, that would add to the convincing, albeit circumstantial, evidence. But if not, hmm. Also, there's the matter of the mysterious note and the empty donut box. Before camp officially got going, 
One of the counselors had a box of donuts in her backpack. When she went to get them, she found someone had taken the donuts but left a note in the box, an ominous, anonymous one that threatened to kill counselors in a certain tent. Camp leaders looked into it but decided it was just a sick prank. I only found one mention of it. If it was part of the case after that, it didn't make the papers. It sort of sounds like the premise for a horror movie franchise though, doesn't it? The prime suspect turns out not to be the killer after all, or is caught, killed, and somehow resurrected. Hmm. Speaking of resurrections, let's talk about the seemingly immortal Jason, and if the Camp Scott Girl Scout murders inspired Friday the 13th the movie. The Sun reported that the creators of Friday the 13th have previously said the series was not based on a true story. However, The Sun also pointed out similarities between the movie and an unsolved massacre at Lake Bottom in Finland. Which is actually a little bit of a stretch, but yes, it does involve Friday the 13th-esque aspects. On June 5th, 1960, 15-year-old Ermalee Bjorklund and her friend, whose name I apologize, I will definitely butcher this, Tuliki Maki, also 15, were camping at the lake with their 18-year-old boyfriends, Seppo Boisman and Niles Gustafsson. During the night, an unknown attacker stabbed the girls and Boisman, killing them all. Gustafsson was found unconscious with a concussion and a fractured jaw. Neither the murder weapon nor the killer was ever found, though. However, decades later, in 2004, Gustafsson was arrested for the murders and put on trial. All because, upon reevaluating the case, prosecutors decided a particular piece of evidence at the scene made no sense and therefore implicated Gustafsson as the killer. Like the Camp Scott murders where shoes, or at least shoe prints, factored into the case. Shoes were also clues in the Lake Bottom Massacre. Everyone's shoes with their blood on them were found hidden in some bushes. All that is except Gustafsson's. Prosecutors alleged he had been drunk, gotten a fight with Boisman, and that's how his jaw got broken. They further theorized that must have ignited his fury, and in a drunken rage, he killed everyone. However, the jury didn't buy the argument and acquitted Gustafson. So, that's what happened to him, but what happened to Jean Leroy Hart in the Camp Scott murders? Hart remained at large for 10 months after the murders, which became known as the Girl Scouts murders. He was finally captured on April 7, 1978. In July 1978, he was ordered to stand trial. In the meantime, he returned to the state penitentiary because he was an escaped convict after all. He had his original sentence to serve, as well as new time for his breakout. Over 300 years, in fact. 
His trial started on March 19, 1979. On March 30, 1979, the jury found him innocent and he was acquitted of the Camp Scott Girl Scouts murders. Again, that didn't make him a free man though. But he also didn't serve much more time in prison either. On a Monday night, almost two years to the day that the bodies of Lori Lee Farmer, Doris Denise Milner, and Michelle Heather Gus were found, Jean Leroy Hart collapsed, suffering what would prove to be a fatal heart attack. Yet, questions in the case still linger, such as one brought up by Maria in a comment she left on the post I wrote about this case. She wondered whether any preserved DNA would help solve it. DNA would have no doubt cracked the case if such technology to identify it had been around in the late 70s. Maria got me wondering, though, had any potential DNA evidence been found and saved? Turns out, yes. Semen was found at the scene on a pillow and has remained in evidence ever since. However, as Kim L. Pasqualini detailed on Medium.com, when the FBI retested the semen in 2008 to try and create a DNA profile, it was too degraded. However, she also wrote that she hopes that perhaps advancements in DNA testing and science will one day find a way to draw the necessary info from it and once and for all solve who the killer of those girls at Camp Scott was. But I'm wondering, even though Hart was acquitted, perhaps the right man had been caught after all. You'd think, knowing all we do about serial rapists and killers now, that his bloodlust wouldn't have been satisfied and he would have struck again. Once Hart was caught, however, no other crimes like that ever happened again. Or was there too much heat and, with all the attention focused on someone else, the real killer saw an opportunity to escape and fled elsewhere? I don't know, but I welcome you to share your thoughts with me about that or anything else you've heard thus far by sending an email to podcast at hauntjaunts.net. Now, let's end this episode by turning our attention to what's happened in the years since. Camp Scott first opened on August 12, 1928. According to Abandon OK, it was known as Camp Ma Del Co back then. But a few years later, it became Camp Scott. For 49 years, it served as a camp, conference, and special events destination in the state of Oklahoma for a variety of groups. However, because of its dark history, it never reopened after June 13, 1977. It's been abandoned ever since. I'm sure paranormal investigators and the paracurious can't help but wonder, is it haunted? It's a valid question given the camp's tragic history, even one that crossed my mind when I first learned of this story. But it's also one of those cases that begs more respect than usual. 
For one, the camp is located on private property. Trespassers are not welcome and will be prosecuted. Although, hunting of a different kind than ghosts is allowed there. The property is used as a hunting lease. But more importantly, respect demands to be observed for the sake of those little girls and their families. Because haunting, yes, all those impacted by these murders couldn't help but be haunted forever after. Like Carla Wilhite, the counselor who was on her way to the showers that morning. The Tulsa World wrote an article about the cold case Camp Scott murders and how it still impacts those associated with it. Will Height was one of those who gained special permission to return to the camp 40 years-ish after the murders. She shared how it felt to see it again after all those years, how familiar it all still looked through the dilapidation, but also tainted too. But those haunted most of all have to be the parents of those little girls. When I think of them, it conjures an enormous sense of empathy and respect. I can only imagine how gut-wrenching it'd be to be in their shoes, hearing of thrill-seekers running around the woods trying to catch photos and AVPs of their daughters. It's one of those cases that just feels wrong to mess around with, a violation of sacred space. Not that I know of anyone who has tried to conduct a paranormal investigation on the site, at least not publicly. As with most things, there's a fine line when it comes to respectability in certain matters. Ghost hunting some abandoned properties like prisons and asylums still doesn't sit well with some folks, but most will shrug it off and let you be. If that floats your boat, so be it. Knock yourself out. As long as you have permission to be there and aren't trespassing, go for it. But in instances like this, the line blurring fantasy and excitement and the true weight of the real life circumstances are harder to tolerate. You could easily draw the wrath of non-ghost hunters unsympathetic to your adventure who would have no problem schooling you in the concept of decency and demanding an immediate cease and desist. Rightfully so. Because if for no other reason, ask yourself how you would live after enduring such trauma like the parents of Lori Lee, Doris, Denise, and Michelle had to after June 13, 1977. That's a question that should live in perpetuity as a rhetorical one that no soul should ever have to answer. Sadly, the Milners, the Gusses, and the Farmers had to live the reality. I wanted to know what happened to the parents because this case hit my heart hard. Seeing the faces of the victims in the papers, well, they were really close to the same age I would have been back in 1977. Their photos could have belonged to classmates of mine back then, ones who ended up having the privilege of growing up, unlike Lori Lee, Doris, Denise, and Michelle did. Their lives were brutally and cruelly revoked. Doris's dad, Walt Milner, a Tulsa policeman, 
retired from the force, but died of a heart attack on Valentine's Day in 1996. To the Oklahoman, her mom, Betty, described never succumbing to bitterness over her daughter's murder, but rather to intense fear, fueled no doubt from the helplessness of entrusting your child to an experience that should have been anything but what it became and being powerless to have influenced the events differently. The Gusses and the Farmers took the activists and advocates route. In 1980, Richard Gus started fighting for victims' rights in Oklahoma. As a leading lobbyist for the cause, he pushed for the Crime Victim Witness Bill of Rights, which the state legislature ultimately adopted. Because of his dedication, the governor nominated him to be on the state's Crime Victims' Compensation Board. He never missed a meeting in 13 years. Victims' rights was also something Lori's parents, Charles and Sherry Farmer, fought for, including families to have the right to be heard in the courtroom and for them to have a secure waiting area during trials. In honor of what would have been Lori's 16th birthday, they founded the Oklahoma Chapter of Parents of Murdered Children. so much for joining me for this first episode of Haunting American True Crimes, our first serialized season here on the Haunt Johns podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with those you'd like to discuss this case with, and subscribe so you know when future episodes drop. Speaking of, next time we'll examine a couple of cases where ghosts might have helped solve their own murders. <laughs>